Greetings. Welcome to Pastoring on Purpose, episode two. And uh, it's a really an honor to be with you guys today. And we're coming at you uh, Brady Bunch style today. First time that we're doing the Zoom format. And actually with COVID and everything going on, actually the, uh, uh, the logistics is actually easier than being in person. We got a special, uh, special episode for you today. I want to get right into it. And uh, I want to welcome our, our guest today. Uh, Pastor Hugh Nelson, Dr. Hugh Nelson, Bishop Hugh Nelson, you name it. We're just going to call you Hugh today. If that's Hugh okay. works. Hugh works. Mm-hmm. All right. Good. Good. But uh, it is an honor to have you today, uh, Hugh, and really excited. Hugh Nelson is a part of our board for the care division. So he's really a part of our family, a big part of our success, what we do. Um, it has a lot to do with what Hugh has contributed on that board. Also, uh, as far as education goes, you graduated from the New, is it New York Theological Seminary, correct? Yes. Good. And um, got his doctorate degree there. Um, he's also a trustee for the Brookdale University Hospital and Medical Center um, out, of, out of Brooklyn there. And so um, we're going to get a really, uh, you, you're not going to want to miss this episode because you're going to get a fresh perspective of what it was like in March some of the things that they had to deal with with COVID, some of the things they're dealing with now. Um, there's a lot of things that we can dive into that we're going to dive into just a little bit later. Uh, but thanks for being with us today, Hugh. It is a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. You're welcome. I'm going to go to my colleague, Raymond. Raymond, what's up, man? Not much. You're doing okay? Doing well. Doing well. We were talking about earlier how our first episode was really great. So if this one bombs, we're just going to blame you. Yeah, that's fine with me. You can blame me for it, but I doubt with Dr. Nelson on the call and uh, Dr. Sargent and you, I doubt that it's going to bomb just yeah. because of me, I hope. Yeah, you're, you're fine. I'm just messing with you, of course, uh, and uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's why this podcast is awesome. When you get people like Pastor Mark Williams and Pastor Hugh Nelson on, they kind of carry us, and so they do. Uh, I'll take it. Jeff, how's it going, man? Doing great. Uh, I'm feeling more like uh, I would say one of the Brady Bunch, like you said earlier. If I, my, based on where my window is, I think I'm Marsha. I think is who I am this morning. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm excited about this. I mean, th- th- this is really a, a cool gig that we got going here and getting to hear the pastors who are out there working and dealing with day-to-day issues of being and being a pastor. And to have these, the, these pastors volunteer to come here and talk to us, it's just exciting. So I can't wait to hear uh, from you today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we get there, you know, we're getting close to Thanksgiving, the Christmas season. And uh, we've already got our Christmas tree up, by the way. Um, and um, have you guys already started decorating yet? Uh, Jeff, you're shaking your head no. We're not to Thanksgiving yet. We've got to get through Thanksgiving first. <laughs> We have to get to Thanksgiving first. There we go. There we go, Dr. Nelson. That's our rule, usually the week after Thanksgiving. The week after, okay. Well, you know, the the rationale was uh, 2020 has been hard enough. I need this, and let's bring a little joy. And if we have to do it early, let's do it now. And I'm I'm not going to argue with that. So I understand, though. Speaking of you know, Christmas, you know, I thought it'd be fun to kind of ease into this uh, because we're going to be talking about some pretty heavy subjects here. Um, uh, you know, my, my wife really loves the Hallmark movies. And um, I haven't told Raymond that I'm going to be doing this. I, I kind of gave the other two kind of a, a heads up a little bit. But I think it'd be fun um, to kind of talk about some Hallmark movies for just a moment. And 
um, a little game of is it real or is it not real? And so I'm going to name the, the movie. I'm going to give you a description of the movie, and I want you to share with me if you think it is a real Hallmark movie or if you believe it to be fake. Does everybody understand the rules? I got it, but can I call my wife? Because she would know better than I. <laughs> this is not who wants, uh, what's the name? Uh, who wants to be a millionaire? A I no. Be a no, no phoning a friend, no right, lifeline, right. no, no, right. no, you're, you're you on your own. So, okay, let me, uh, let me find the list here that I had. Here we go. <laughs> the name of the movie is Never Kiss a Man in a Christmas Sweater. Single mom Maggie is facing Christmas alone until Lucas crashes into her life and becomes an unexpected house guest. Together, they overcome Christmas while finding comfort in their growing bond. Real or not real? Who wants to take a stab at Jeff? Go for it. Not real. Not Almost sounds. Um, I would. I would follow Jeff on that one. That, that, that's a little extreme. Okay, <laughs> Raymond. I would say the bigger question is: Is that really a Christmas movie or some other kind of movie that you're talking about? I yeah. would say not real too. Yeah, it is real. Oh, it is. A, oh. it is <laughs> you, you guys are batting zero right now. That is a never kissing man in a Christmas sweater is an actual movie. And so you will not want to miss that one. That's for sure. I think I'm going to pass on that one, guys. All right. Uh, also, yeah, it's good advice, though. It's a good advice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, here's another one. A God Wink Christmas, second chance, first love. After 15 years, Pat moves from Hawaii with his two sons and through a series of coincidences or God Winks, ends up stuck in traffic next to his high school sweetheart, Margie, at Christmas. Real or not real? Hugh, we'll it's start with you. Real. Real? Okay. Jeff? Real. Real. Raymond? Real. All right. So you all are correct. That is an actual Hallmark movie, A Godwin Christmas, Second Chance, First Love. A couple more. Love Lights Hanukkah. That's the name of the movie. As Christina prepares her restaurant for its busiest time of year, she gets back a DNA test revealing that she's Jewish. The discovery leads her to a new family and an unlikely romance over eight nights. Real or not real? Hugh Nelson. Yeah, I'll go for it. Real. Real? Jeff. Not real. Not real. Raymond? Not real. Not real. Hugh is leading the charge. Oh, it is real. Uh, Two points to Hugh. The rest of you have one point. So uh, that is an actual movie, Love, Lights, Hanukkah. Mm. <laughs> so um, we could really dive in. We could spend a lot of time on this. We're not going to, but we could. Uh, I'm not even going to get into Christmas, she wrote. But that's a real movie, too. Wow. Um, here's one. Vanilla Ice and the Christmas Tree Heist. In a misguided effort to help fund his new podcast, Stop, collaborate, but most importantly, listen. Vanilla Ice hatches a daring plot to steal Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's luxurious Christmas tree. But if he's going to return to a life of crime for one last score, he's going to need his old crew. It's a 
Heist, heist, baby. Real or not real? Hugh. I would say not real. Jeff. I hope it's not real. <laughs> yeah, I would say not real. You all are correct. That is not real. Although that is the one Hallmark movie I might actually listen to. <laughs> so, anyway, that was a little fun game. Let's just dive right in and uh, welcome to the podcast. And so, hope you were able to play at home with us. And uh, yeah, uh, Hallmark movies normally have the same kind of theme to it, you know, and uh, they're pretty safe, pretty predictable. And, um, you know, uh, someone's going to be finding love. So, uh, needless to say. Hugh, I want to just, let's dive in here and um, tell us a little bit about yourself because I, I find your story really, you know, phenomenal, uh, quite frankly. I mean, you know, uh, from where you grew up yeah. <laughs> to, to, to Germany, you, I, I just share with us a little bit about you. So I, I'm the son of a pastor, um, born in Jamaica, beautiful island of Jamaica. And um, we lived in um, Jamaica for many years. Um, what's quite interesting that um, uh, we, we, were, we relocated every few years. So we lived, I, actually as a child, I lived in one place for four years. Everywhere else was maybe two and a half or three years. Um, and so we, we moved around, kind of hopped around the island. Then my father um, went to England to preach and they talked him into taking a church in London. And um, for a couple of years, um, my mom headed the family in Jamaica. Um, and then she eventually went up. Um, so the family went up somewhat in chains. Um, and so at, um, just after graduating from high school, um, that was when my mother went up. And so I made a transition um, quite awkward um, trying to find my footing. Um, at 22 years old, um, I went up to England with, um, to join the family. And while in, in the, in, still in the transition moment, um, applied for um, a scholarship at the Church of God. Um, um, that was EBS, European Bible Seminary in Germany, and got accepted. And so um, went over to Germany, um, I remembered um, landing there Sunday night, um, Heinrich Schertz, the president, came and picked me up. And uh, Monday morning, I woke up only to discover I was the only black person in, this, in the entire college. A um, couple days later, as I ventured into town, I quickly discovered I was the only black person living in the town. So that was quite interesting, making a transition from Jamaica majority um, race being black um, and then moving to England and then turning up in Germany. So that was my transition. So I, I was raised by um, parents who were very much involved in terms of church and community. And so um, I grew up um, watching my parents who were very much um, engaged in what was going on in the church, in the community, just as much as the church. What was quite interesting was that um, my father was the one who also introduced the Church of God to Buckingham Palace. So he purchased several copies of Like a Mighty Army by Charles Kahn and um, sent a copy to Queen Elizabeth 
one to um, Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister then, and several members of parliament. And, um, but so, uh, as uh, race issues began to emerge um, with the West Indian community in England, um, he had several, he met with um, Margaret Thatcher several times to discuss the growing race issue. So that's the kind of background that um, I was exposed to. Um, so what I do now in New York City is really not strange. Um, it is almost an extension of what I saw my parents doing as a child. Wow, interesting, interesting. You know, and like a mighty army has went obviously worldwide, even yes. to Buckingham Palace, that's pretty neat. And uh, meeting uh, Margaret Hatcher, but, you know, that's a rich uh, legacy that you have. Uh, and I'm sure that your parents have played a huge role as far as um, you know, um, that legacy today and, yeah. and that kind of influence. Oh, definitely. One of the events which um, were, was quite pivotal, because around 81, 82, um, they had the Brixton riots um, in London. And so, of course, you have um, a, a country like Jamaica, and of course, being a colony of England. So we were already exposed to the British culture. So as um, immigrants from the empire moved to England, after a while, you now begin to have the emerging of this race tension. And so I remember one, one Sunday morning, as we were driving to church, we drove right into a riot. And what was interesting was that these young West Indian guys who were, they had um, barrels and they were setting fires. When my father pulled up, they stopped, cleared the path, um, allowed us to drive in, um, move the barrels back, and kept burning. So what we discovered in that event was, although they were angry at the system, they still had a respect for the church. And so that was one of the, the ways that my father was able to invite the London police and Scotland Yard to meet at the church as a neutral place. And so instead of just arresting these guys, the church became um, a place where um, these young black men and police officers could sit and have open dialogue. And out of that, they in turn hired several of those young men into the police. So years later, even when I go back to England, there are, young, there are men who, who have now uh, retired, but um, they were literally encouraged to join the police as a means of solving the issue rather than just being on the outside. Wow, incredible. Uh, I want to ask Jeff if you want to jump in there. Anything yeah, you want to... I, do. I, I was about to jump in even before you Go ahead. Ask, so thank you. you I'm, so many things I'd like to ask you, and it, it just become my podcast, and that's not what it should be, all right? But, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just imagining how that was an impactful moment, and, and that's what you're saying, it, for you in your life to see that, to, be, you know, to see people behaving destructively, people lashing out at the system, all right, yeah, is what yeah. you're saying there, but you got to see the humanity too, okay? So it, often what happens to us is we see people in a situation and we say, well, they're bad, they're evil. And I, I don't know the hearts of these men that you're talking yeah. about, but you've got to see also genuine care and the humanity in their hearts and the way they responded to your family. And I assume, and please expound on this if, if you can, 
how that's impact you in your ministry, you know, because to learn that at an early age that, wow, see humans not as they are, but as they could be or as, as they, they could are be. On the yeah. And, and, and many times, and that's why, and that has shaped even how I deal with issues in terms of race or culture or ethnicity. Because when you're on the outside, in, 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 in some, at some level, you don't see hope. And so even at a place where these young men thought they didn't have a chance and they had nothing to lose but to um, set these fires, I discovered they still had respect for the church. The church meant something. And so um, my father invited um, the police. And by the way, in that section of um, London, in Brixton, and if you, you can Google it because it literally changed policing in England. And so what, what it did was it gave a neutral space for the police and these young men to sit and have a dialogue, to talk about the issue. And the fact that um, the, the, the church became that instrument. And, and that's why I believe the church has, we have a God-given opportunity to be a voice of calm, a voice to create um, dialogue. We, we don't, we're not out there on the bandwagon with our own agenda. We are representing, we're ambassadors for Christ. And um, I mean, it, my dad would invite the police band to come and do a concert. And, to, and, and so you have these same people from the community now come to their church and watch a band, all police officers, playing instruments. And so they began to now see the humanity of these police officers. Because many times when you see a police officer, you see the uniform, you see what they represent, you overlook their humanity. Wow, wow. Raymond, you wanna jump in there? You're talking a lot there about restoration, change, hope, seeing beyond the surface, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the only thing that I would say is I think it's really interesting that, that you know, your perception of it, as, you know, like you're saying, your perception of it is what can be unique to each individual person that perceives that. And to perceive the humanity underneath that uniform and yeah. all of those symbols of authority, um, I think is, is really, to me, that's a powerful thing that you're talking about. Years later, um, which is, we talk about how we are shaped by these events. So, um, I graduated from um, European Public Seminary, spent one year doing an internship, got married, and three weeks later was at the seminary. So I almost had my honeymoon um, at the seminary. And of course, I um, did my training. And um, when I moved from Cleveland, I moved to Ottawa, Canada. So I lived in Canada for eight and a half years. Um, and I can still remember after I was asked to... Um, to, to go to take this church and supervise this district in Ottawa. I've never been to Canada, but I remember I was walking through Walmart, um, just off Paul Huff um, Highway, right in Cleveland. And I was praying, God, um, here I am moving to Ottawa, never been to Canada before. How am I gonna pastor? I know that the, the congregation was started by Jamaican immigrants, but there has to be beyond that, there had to be clear direction. And I just walking in Walmart, praying and just having this conversation in my mind. And the Lord spoke to my heart, don't pastor the congregation, pastor the city. 
So when I, my wife and, and two boys, by the way, were born um, at Bradley, Bradley Hospital right there. And so we, I, we packed our stuff and drove 22 hours to Ottawa, Canada. So when we moved into Ottawa, wherever I went as the new pastor, my mantra was, I'm here not to pastor my members. I'm here to pastor the, the city. So if you don't have a pastor, you just found one. So um, after doing this for a few months, basically introducing myself in, in several settings, um, a young man in a, in, a, in a biracial relationship, a young black man, white um, girlfriend, um, had a conflict, um, got into a fight, and she called the cops. So after um, he discovered that she had called the cops, he fled from the apartment in the dark, jumped into the Ottawa River. The only problem was he couldn't swim. So he drowned. So the next morning, the entire city was up in uproars, blaming the cops for causing this young man's death. So um, I never even knew the couple, um, but having been around a few weeks. So one day, a, a, maybe six or seven people who had never met came to my office to meet with me. So my secretary said, uh, there's a group of folks, they're here to meet you. I said, well, what's the situation? So the leader says, well, we heard um, you've been saying wherever you've been that you're here to pastor the community. Well, we want to see you put your words now to action. So they sat in my office. So I said, well, how can I help you? So they said, we're going to have a parade. We're going to have a demonstration against the police. And we want you to lead. I want, we want you to be in front um, as we demonstrate against the police. So as I sat there thinking, oh, my God, maybe I had overcommitted. I'm having these thoughts in my mind. And... Um, I mean, God is so awesome. I said, Lord, I need some wisdom in this situation. And so I said to the, I said to the guys, I said, why don't you do this? Give me two days. Let me pray about it. And then in two days, I have an answer for you. They didn't even make it out of the building. The Lord, I just felt in my spirit, you don't know these people. And you can't lead the march of strangers. You need to know what their gender is. So when they called back the office a couple of days, my secretary told them, um, pastor has a different plan. So my idea was, before we march against the police, let's, let's extend an olive branch and let's have a dialogue with the police. So um, out of that, we were able to have some community meetings. And of course, whenever there's a situation with the police, whether there's a, a beating or a death, it also um, brings back to the surface all the wrongs which were never addressed in the past. And um, so we had several meetings with the police and um, things kind of settled, but there was still some tensions um, in the community. So um, some months later, um, I, I met, I began to introduce myself um, I introduced myself to the only black judge in the city. Um, I met the highest ranking black police officer. And so we started having coffee um, every week just to build relationships. His name is Terry Friday, Inspector Terry Friday. So one day as we're over coffee, I said, you know, Terry, I have an idea. I'm not sure it will work, but it's just an idea. He goes, what's the idea? I said, 
I want to have a service at my church. I want to have a police appreciation service at my church. Um, I would like, before I criticize the police, I want to extend an olive branch, let them know I'm here as a partner, and go from there. But I refuse to criticize the police publicly before I have had an opportunity for dialogue. And so he spoke to police um, chief Ford, and, um, uh, and so we, we set up a meeting, and so we both met with the chief and um, sat in his office at the police headquarters. And the, the chief says, now, Bishop, what's your plans? I said, well, very simple, agenda above board. I want to give the community and the police an opportunity to come together in a worship experience. It's a worship experience. But during that moment, I'm going to invite you as the police chief to speak to the community. And I will moderate I will invite the overseer, Bishop Blake. He's the overseer for Ontario. I, so he used to live, he lived in, in um, Ottawa in the past. So I'm going to have him come back and he'll be the preacher. But we'll make sure that this event is wholesome and gives an opportunity for community and police just to engage in a neutral environment. So you could see he was reluctant, but he didn't have a, an, an alternative. So he goes, okay, what date can we work? So we penned a date and we started promoting it. So that Sunday morning, I'm sitting in my office, the media is already camped out in front of the church. Um, one of the journalists made it in my office before the service. So he says, why are you doing this? I said, very simple. I think it, before we can criticize the police, I should offer an olive branch. Um, did, did you have a bad experience with them? I said, no, I'm not waiting until I have a bad experience. I want them to know that they're partners in the community who have the welfare of our community at heart. And so during the service, um, I, ma I made a statement right at the front, which was prepared, um, knowing that the, um, the, the, the media was in the service as well as outside. I said, this is not a criticism of the police. This is merely an act of goodwill. And I said, um, talked about the, the fact that no police officer leaves his home, goes out thinking he's going to kill someone. He's there to serve and protect. However, I wanted them to know that this church was here to partner with them. And I also want to put on notice those rogue police officers who may still use the uniform or the shield to perpetrate their own racism, that we're going to keep them under scrutiny. And then at the end, I said no to all, to every family member who has lost a husband or a wife, a son or a daughter, or a parent in the line of duty, on behalf of the community, I want to say thank you for your sacrifice. That's the end. Now, the next, a couple of days later, there's a message on my answering machine. And if you know, Ottawa is a sister city. So it's right on the border of um, Ontario and Quebec, uh, the, the French-speaking province. Well, I got a call from a woman who saw it on the television. And she said, simply said, never met her. She just left this message on my telephone. She said, Bishop Nelson, I live in Quebec. My husband has been a police officer for many years. He died in the line of duty 15 years ago. I have been so bitter 
because I felt that the community never valued the sacrifice. But when I watched the news and heard you said thank you to the family members who have lost a loved one, she said, for the first time I felt his death mattered. Thank you. Well, here's the amazing thing. Because I didn't know that Chief Ford took the risk because he was up for retirement. He had three months before he retired. So um, as the, the sit, it was announced in the city that Chief Ford was now retiring and they were now looking for the new police chief. A couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from the deputy chief, Chief Bevins. Um, called me. He says, Bishop Nelson, um, Chief um, Deputy Bevins. I said, yes, I remembered you from the service. He said, I have just walked out of a meeting and I was asked if I would take the position as chief. And he said, I'll take it. I told him I would take it on one condition. If Bishop Nelson and I could work as partners, I would be happy to take that position. And I says, look, I am a partner waiting to work with you. And so he became the chief. And for the next six years, we headed an organization called Compact, which is Community and Police Action Committee, two co-chairs, the chief representing the police and the community leader, myself, representing the community, which meant we could speak to any issue in the city affecting police and race. And so that just tells you one engagement moves to the next, and you have no idea what the end result would be like. Wow. Uh, you know, what a wonderful story, leadership, right? I mean, that, uh, there's so many things to unpack from that story that is actually beautiful. I mean, when you said, um, I had to write it down, pastor, the community, not just the church. Yeah. And the pressure that I'm sure that you got to join one side of that and the, the heat and, and having to kind of go against that and say, you know what, we're, we're a people that see things differently as God's people. Um, we don't look at things through the same lens. We're a people of grace. We're a people of love. We're people of compassion. We're a people of listening. Yes. And, and I, I just, I, Hugh, I could listen to you all day. Phenomenal. <laughs> I, I was not expecting that. This is even better than I thought. <laughs> now, God has been good. God has definitely. So when we came to Brooklyn 17 years ago, I have um, continued the same philosophy. I am not here for my members. I'm here for my community. So you don't have to be a tithe payer, and you don't have to be a member of the church to have access to me. <laughs> Love it. Guys, y'all want to kind of jump in and I don't want to be the only one uh, else talking. I, I agree with Tim. It, it, it's wonderful, wonderful story. In fact, I, 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 we could go to two or three more podcasts, I think, right here, you, with what you just presented to us. Uh, but going back to where you started in, in telling us the story and how God called you to pastor the community, as Tim was also uh, reiterating, what would be your advice to a pastor, all right, who's sitting there listening to this thinking, okay, yeah, I, I, I would like to pastor my community, and I believe God's calling me to pastor my community. But that's a risk. You know that. It's a risk. You risk your relationship within your church, with your, yes, with yes. your congregation. And it's also, it's quite threatening as an individual to say, I'm going to step out here and say, okay, community, here I am. I'm going to get out here with all the messiness of the community issues, and I'm going to get right in the middle of it. Tell I, me, what would be your advice? 
I'm not, I, I'm not sure if it's our seminary training, um, but I think to some degree, we have missed the true potential of what salt and light really represents. Because light is not needed during the day. It's in the darkness that it really makes a difference. And, and, and um, so I am um, being a second generation, and to be honest, I couldn't pastor the way my father pastored for several reasons. Uh, my father um, pastored, he had his own personality, but I also discovered as big as his, as his heart was, um, he didn't build a structure. So for example, um, at the time he was pastoring the largest Church of God congregation in England, which was about five, 600 people. Now he was full-time in the church. His secretary had a uh, full-time job, secular job, and then after her job would come to the, um, the church and do her um, um, office work. Um, he had um, two other associate pastors who had their secular jobs. And then, you, of course, you had a custodian. So in reality, as the church grew, the weight on his shoulder increased. So he had to literally pastor, be the visionary, as well as be the operations person. So one of the things I took from that was, um, and by the way, he passed at the early age of 54. Now that tells you. So um, I didn't have the luxury of ignoring those things. So that means I had to approach ministry completely different. So my priority is always build a team before you go public. So when I came to Brooklyn 17 years ago, um, and, and I was introduced to chaplaincy while at the seminary um, with Dr. Robert Crick, um, and discovered the value of, um, of chaplaincy even in the local church. And so when I was in Ontario, I was a coordinator for um, chaplaincy ministries. So when I came to New York, recognizing New York is a much larger and more complex um, city, Ottawa was simply, what, uh, maybe a, uh, on less than a million people. New York City, we talk about documented, over 8 million. So in undocumented, easily 10, 11 million people. So when I came to New York and began to share my vision, first, how I pastored. I, um, I am not a, a solo pastor. I'm a team pastor. That means I work with a team. So um, the pastor before me was the pastor. Then he had a few preachers in the church. I selected a few individuals who had already built credibility to become my associate team. And then we went into training. We literally have over 100 um, certified community chaplains in our church. And they are deployed on a weekly basis. So we can do funerals, we can visit the hospital, the nursing home, we can do all kinds of ministry, and I'm not there. But I had to train the team before we went public and talked about what does it really mean to serve in, in this um, milieu. So I challenge pastors um, that our primary role is really to be the visionary, not the ones carrying the church, but the one who sees where God is taking the church. 
and then train and select people who become a part of the team. And I always say, and I, and I say it right from the podium, if our church was to close tomorrow, if the doors were closed tomorrow, and my community didn't miss us, we have failed them. That wow. means it's much more than just having a worship service. Mm -hmm. It has to be where we add to the quality of life of our community. So how I, how I got on the, um, the uh, now I've been a member of the board of trustee of one of our large hospitals in Brooklyn for the past 15 years. I'm now one of the oldest um, or longest serving trustee on the board. But how was I invited to serve on this hospital board? Simple. So um, I had, I live, um, again, every pastor know it works for them. I can't live close to the church. I grew up in a church parsonage. Uh, I, I have a phobia for church parsonage. I have to live in, a, in a God, I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, if you'd help me to live in my own home so my children, if they mess the wall up, there it's their go. house. Uh, yes, I grew up in, pars in church parsonages where the deacons would just show up unexpectedly. Uh, um, uh, and it was not to visit, it was to check um, the quality of the house. And yeah. we have lived in houses um, where after we moved out, it was rejected. And the people who helped to find that house wouldn't have lived there themselves. So I live about 30 minutes outside, away from my church. I live close to John F. Kennedy. So I really live on the border um, of um, Queens um, and L Long Island. So, um, so when we, so after um, coming into Brooklyn, about two years later, I, I, I sent a meet, I asked my secretary to set up a meeting with the president of the, of the hospital. I needed 30 minutes of his time just to meet him, introduce myself, and to let him know that I'm here as a partner. So uh, we set up the appointment, my wife and I, and one of my deacons. And so when we went over to the hospital, um, they, they um, ushered us into the executive suite. And I was expecting to walk into the president's office and to just have uh, 20, 30 minutes, the maximum. Instead, they led me into the boardroom. When I, wa when I walked into the boardroom, every head of department was sitting at that table, including the chairman of the board of trustees. Mm -hmm. So the president, um, introduced me. He says, I'm a new pastor from, from Canada um, who's just five minutes um, walk away from the hospital. And um, I had reached out um, to meet him, but he felt it was more important that I met the team and not just him. Well, instead of half an hour, we were in that boardroom for about an hour and a, an hour and a half. And so after they asked me all questions and I talked about um, certainly my time in Canada and that wherever I have ever lived, I've always worked with the police, education and health. And I said, I want you to know I'm here. Any way our church can be a blessing to this hospital, we're here to serve. Now, the interesting thing is, um, although this hospital is located right in Brooklyn, apart from my wife and myself, and my deacon, there was only one other black person in that room. Hmm. Uh, so um, after we left, 
you know, they gave us a tour. So they, they walked us, gave us a tour of the hospital. So as I'm walking with the president up front, my wife is walking right behind me be, beside the, the chief of, um, the, the chair of the trustee board, 80-year-old Dr. Khan. And so you know how you can be talking, but overhear the conversation behind you. And so as we're walking and the president is explaining different areas, Dr. Khan is asking my wife, so how long have you guys been here? Yes, uh, we've just been here two years. And where do you live? She says, um, Valley Stream. He says, I live in Valley Stream as well. So she, he says, where in Valley Stream do you live? So she said, I, we live on Park. He goes, I live just off Park. I know, oh, so you're the black family that just moved in our neighborhood. He goes, because it's a Jewish neighborhood. He says, I've got to tell my friends, you're wonderful people. Well, after we did a tour, and I got made it back to my office. Then about two months later, I got this call from Dr. Khan. He says, Bishop, can we meet for lunch? So sure, anytime you need me, I'm here to serve you. So we met for lunch and had a, a lovely meal and he talked some more about the challenges facing the hospitals. And I said, no, just know I'm praying for you guys. I want you to succeed, but I'm here anyway, I can be of help. So we, we parted ways about a month later. My wife and I were supposed to go into Man Manhattan. I get this call from Dr. Khan. Bishop, can we meet for lunch? I'm sure. We'll make. So I said to my wife, you go in Manhattan. I have to honor my word. I'll meet with Dr. Khan. So we, we sat there over lunch um, with the community director. And he talked again about some of the challenges facing the, uh, the hospitals in, in um, the urban setting. And so I jokingly says, man, I, I've always told you guys I'd pray for you. Now I'm going to fast for you. <laughs> he says, I don't want your prayer. So I'm like, oh, he must have missed the joke. Mm -hmm. He goes, we need you on the board. You need me on the board? He says, yes. He said, These are his words. The board of trustees is made up of a group of old Jewish men. And we need some young people like yourself to join us. And when I, when I walked into that boardroom um, for the first time as a board member, I was the only black person sitting in that room. And this is a hospital located in Brooklyn. So most of the board members were actually second generation board members. Their fathers had served. And they were, uh, the average age was 70 to 80. And after they saw me in, and I became a part of that team. God has helped me. Um, it's, it's just when you step out and trust the Lord, it's amazing the difference you can make. And so I say to pastors, the church is not resting on your shoulders. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, here's what happens. You can't prevail at the gates unless you are at the gates. And most of our churches are avoiding the public space. So we're more comfortable in an echo, talking to ourselves, rather than engaging the public space at the gates of the city, because that's where we are needed most. So that's wow. crunching, uh, just a part of the journey. Wow. Wow. I'm writing that quote down, by the way. Phenomenal. And, and I, I, you know, there's so many ways that we can go. How did it, it was just kind of being the one person there 
Yeah. Well, you know, again, I, I, I was shocked because when I lived in Canada, um, the black population in Canada was like, in Ottawa, Ottawa, Canada, was like five or six percent. So I understood. I mean, I was in, I, I, I lived in Germany. I, I, and that's, so I understood that um, God puts you in places to navigate where you are. So it's not about where you wish you were. It's how you navigate where you are. And if you are the minority where you are, it doesn't mean you are less significant. It simply means you don't have the luxury of waiting for someone else to take the initiative. You have to take the initiative and build relationships across the different boundaries. Oh, so no, when, no, to no, my no, surprise- no, I'll, I'll, I'll interrupt right here, Hugh, because I, okay. I don't want, I, I, I want you to repeat what you said about where you are. It's about where you are, not where you want to be. It's basically what you said. I wish you'd repeat that. And I think that's many times that's the trap for even pastors. Yeah. Uh, and this is not indeed in any way to boast. Um, I'm humbled by what God has done. But let me preface that with, with an experience. Because when I, when I embraced the call to ministry, my greatest fear, I couldn't move as often, my peer, I grew up moving every two or three years. We never started and complete the same school. And my struggle was, I couldn't have my children subjected to that kind of instability. So when I came to the seminary, it was a step of faith, but at the same time, I needed to grapple with, what does it, how do we navigate even the appointment system? And I sat in a, I, I, um, Lamar Vest um, met with us new students. And I, I, my only question in that meeting was, Dr. Vest, how did you navigate the appointment system? How do you discern the voice of God? Is it from the church or is it for the stability of your family? Because I am in a quagmire here in terms of how do I discern God's voice and maintaining a stable family life. And here were his words to me. He says, he says, I have served this church in many capacity, but he said, I have never accepted a position before discussing it with my wife and my daughters. And if they agree, then I accept the position. I'm like, are you serious? He goes, I would be out of my mind to accept a position which would affect my family adversely. I had never heard anyone in my life gave that clarity because I have seen pastors um, just, I mean, I mean, it is, we all know, we, we know the stories. I said, you spoke to your daughters about an offer? And he goes, of course. I can tell you he saved my life because since that time to now, I have never accepted an offer in our church without first discussing it with my wife and talking to my children. Even coming to New York, I took, when um, they asked me if I would come to New York, we prayed about it. We felt, yes, it would be a good thing. And so I took the family. Then we had a daughter in Canada. And so now we're five. And so when we were seriously considering coming to New York City, I took the family to Montreal, checked into a beautiful hotel, and just placed on the table, guys, 
Um, there's an offer for us to go to New York. It's a great opportunity. What's your, and your, your mother and I, we have talked about it. We feel this is what God wants, but we want to hear, what do you think? So my first son said, no. He says, you guys can go to New York. I'll stay in Ottawa. <laughs> My, the, the, my daughter, who was born in Ottawa, says, no, I am not leaving Ottawa. So then my middle son, the lawyer, um, he says, you know, dad, he said, he's, look to his siblings. He says, guys, if we go to New York, we're not losing friends from Canada. It just means we're going to meet other friends. And I'm voting with mom and dad. So I says, three against two, we move to New York. <laughs> so we moved to New York um, with them knowing that they had a voice. But every year we have a regroup as a, as a family. And the one question is, did we make the right move? And every year they said, dad, we made the right move. Wow. So I, have, I could have been an overseer twice. We prayed about it, didn't feel peace about it. Wherever I am, that's where God wants me to be. Wow, that's phenomenal. And you talk about community, and you know, that starts with the family. Yes, right? yes I mean, yes. You, you talk about, you know, not just getting up and going without consulting and, and talking with and sharing with and being a part of that community. Raymond, you talk, you talk with a lot of our ministers. You know, you, you see um, uh, a lot of our ministers go through transition, and you see how important that is to, to be not just the pastor, but to be dad. Oh my gosh. Mom. Oh my gosh. You know, it's, it's so huge. And, uh, um, it's, it's, I really do appreciate that about you that you just don't say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. No, no. You know, I you don't looking, go solo. You know, and, and, and what's unfortunate. And I, I don't know, because growing up in, in the Island of Jamaica, the appointment system was, you weren't approached before the convention. You, at the convention, the last night at the, the convention, that's when the names were read out. And you were not approached and consulted. So after you've just heard a powerful sermon, then afterwards the overseer would take the list and read out the names. Yeah. And it was traumatic that's because the moves were not like, to say to someone who have invested two or three years in one location, that now you are reassigned without consulting, that was traumatic. And um, I, I, have, I, I have friends of mine who, whose parents were peers with my father and mother's generation. And they asked, Nelson, how are you doing what you're doing? I said, simple by the grace of God, because they all have horror stories. And we're now living in New York City for 17 years. This is the longest I have lived anywhere in my life. So um, my two boys were born in Cleveland, and they spent about eight years in Cleveland. And when we moved to Ottawa, we spent eight and a half years in um, Ottawa, and now we're here for 17 years. So they have had the luxury of starting school, completing school, of having stability. When I tell them about my grown-up years of moving every two or three years, I mean, I had to learn how to unpack. So when our parents relocated to a new church, I just sat there thinking, no point unpacking. Hey, 
Hi, how are you? Um, because we already knew if we were on the clock in two or three years, we won't be with these people. So the value and the importance of putting our families, I say to my church all the time, my first congregation is the one I live with. So when I get to the place where I can no longer pastor or preach, I want to have my kids say, okay, I have to tell them, okay, you guys, you have to go home to your home because I want to make sure they know that they're loved and that they've always been our priority. Love it. Love it. You know, and you know, you got two PKs here too, you know, <laughs> actually three PKs. I'm the only one that's not, I'm, I'm married to one. Um, but you kind of see that, you know, and scripturally speaking, the family is so vitally important. And I heard a professor say this at Lee one time, that your ministry is not so important that your family can go to hell. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. right. Literally. And uh, Raymond, I, I know you, Raymond always, when he speaks, it's like really good. And he kind of picks his moments. Raymond, is there anything you want to add to the conversation before we move on? Uh, no, I just think that the thing that uh, Dr. Nelson said earlier about including the family, uh, sure, Jeff and I were preacher's kids. You move around a lot. We lived everywhere from California to Indiana to Tennessee to Alabama, uh, all over the place. But I think that's vital for younger ministers. Uh, you know, I had a, a phone call here recently from a, a younger minister. He went through the restoration program with me. Uh, he was recently married when he started the program. Uh, his wife was pregnant when he finished the program, and he calls me up still. It's great to hear from him. And, uh, you know, recently he... He's been talking about maybe needing to do some more counseling. He's pastoring a church. He's got a dual job that he's doing, a business that he owns and operates. Uh, now he has a, a three-year-old daughter, and he just feels like he's not able to turn off being the pastor when he comes home. Uh, he's not able to, to manage the home and the, the other responsibilities that he has uh, in a way that makes him feel at ease. And, uh, and it's so important for young ministers and, and young fathers, you know, never mind being the minister, but being a father and being a husband to be able to know early on, you know, this is not feeling right. Uh, I'm not keeping the right balance in my life that I need to be able to see that and call on somebody that can help them. Uh, or can steer them in, the, in a direction that will help them. Because so early, you, you'll get in a rut like that. You'll get in a place like that. And typically, uh, a couple doesn't, doesn't do anything about it because there's not a, you know, an activating event or some crisis that, that makes them do that. And those get to be ruts. And they get deeper and deeper. And then they're hard to change. So I think it's very important, you know, what you're talking about, involving your family, including your family. Uh, making sure that, that a priority in your life and in your ministry and in all of these things, these wonderful things that you've done and all this leadership, you have stayed focused on your family and you've stayed focused in making sure that that bond that you had there uh, stayed strong and that you were all on the same page. And I think that's, that's a tremendous thing to get out of all of that. Absolutely. And you know, <laughs> Uh, looking at it, uh, you know, when you were mentioning pastors' homes, I imagine we have pastors listening. 
that were <laughs> squeamish at that point. You know, the parsonage, right? Yes. Uh, living inside a parsonage, I, I could I could kind of sense the tension with Jeff a little bit, and even maybe even a little bit with Raymond. And, um, it's 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 unique, right? Uh, Jeff, just a little, little unique, unique side. Is, is a very, unique is a kind word. Uh, let's put it this way. The first house that our apartment that I owned and owned the furniture, the first thing I did is put my feet on the furniture. So this is my furniture. That's I it. get to That's eat it. on it. I get to sit on it. I do whatever I want to on this. <laughs> but uh, that, that's just part of it. And, and, and my, my, my uh, father and mother did a really good job in, in protecting us from a lot of that. Uh, and, but I tell you, it, 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 that got me reflecting on that in Hugh and your story. I think what's beautiful about this is how you talked about how God's calling you or called you to, to pass the community. And, I, and, I'm, and if I'm listening as a minister, I'm thinking, Oh my goodness, I'm barely doing, barely surviving. It's stressful enough trying to pastor my current congregation. You're saying go out and pastor community. And then also, what about my family? But you answered that. I mean, what you're showing here in your story or demonstrating your story is that when God calls you to do this, he also equips you to take care of that that's important to you and that he's already given you. So I think it's a beautiful story and how you're modeling basically with it that Yes, you can continue continue to balance and minister to your family, balance your family and your and, and your work and your calling, and expand it to your community. And I think it's really a beautiful story. And, and I think you know it's because um, I think sometimes um, we we try to make ministry just one model. This yeah. may not be the model for everyone. Right. Um, I am an urban pastor. I love the urban landscape. I, I, I'm not, I don't do well in a rural setting. <laughs> I love to be around the action. I, I need to go into Manhattan from time to time. So um, maybe when I get to retirement age, I'll go the, uh, the other side. But, but, but uh, I've discovered not everyone will feel this level of comfort. Um, not everyone will feel the, le- the same level of comfort in navigating, working with politicians or the police. And I say to pastors, work within your calling. Um, one of the greatest things, and uh, I remember when I was completing my advanced clinical pastoral education in Atlanta, and on the exit um, interview, the question, the question that um, the professor asked me, um, he said, so what are your plans now? And to be honest, when I had left England to come to the seminary, the sentiment was that once you go to the States, you don't want to come back to England. So out of guilt, I'm like, you know, um, I don't want to be another one who went to the States and saw brighter opportunities. And so I said to my professor, you know, I have a burden um, to go back to England and, um, and do some ministry. And then he asked me a question no one had ever asked me before. He goes, why is it a burden? And I thought, well, that's what the old preachers used to say that I have a burden for ministry. And he, he says, why can't ministry be fun? Uh-huh. And I thought, wow, the day you stop having fun doing ministry, you do harm to God's people. Wow. That's, I mean, that's, that's so true. There's a joy there, right? In, in the calling that God has placed upon us. Has and people be. feel that. Yes. People feel that. Um, they need that. Yes. Um, 
you know, with everything we're getting, there's a lot we could dive in here. We're going to wrap it. I, I could go on forever. But Hugh, will you promise to be back with us again? By all uh, means, anytime you need me, Tim, it would be a joy. I know we haven't talked about the pandemic. We haven't talked about COVID-19. Um, but it would be a joy. Whenever you need me, a phone call away. It look, would be a joy. I had an idea coming in, but I, I really think this is far better than whatever idea I may have had of what we're going to discuss. I think God had different plans. Um, you know, we, we, we got COVID, 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 COVID. I, I think this is a nice little uh, break from that. And we'll get back to that. When we have you on, we'll dive right into that. But this has been phenomenal. Jeff, any closing remarks before we dismiss? No, there's nothing to add, really. I mean, it, I'm like you. I, I thought we we're going in a certain direction, but I think that uh, Dr. Nelson, this is wonderful because other pastors need to hear this. They need to hear another pastor just talk about what it's like uh, to pastor on purpose. So yeah. thank you for sharing that with us today. Yeah. Raymond, any closing remarks? No, I just want to thank Dr. Nelson for being here and telling his story. I think it's a tremendous testimony. There's a lot in there that people can glean from that. And I, I just appreciate him taking the time and making the time uh, to do that with us. Thank you, Dr. Nelson. And you know, you won our Hallmark challenge. You beat the other two. <laughs> so congratulations. <laughs> no, I wasn't expecting to win at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember not to kiss a man wearing a Christmas sweater. There we go. That's right. That's right. That's right. I'm going to have to look that one up. Going back to the fun, you know, it's okay to have fun. And, and as a gift, as, as your reward, you probably already have one of these. We're going to send you another one. I would uh, appreciate that. Well, well, this cup right here, I'm just going to, I've just been drinking out of it. Uh, I'm going to anoint it. This is that. I'm going to anoint it. We're going to pray over it. And if you get a bill for $79.99, three easy installments, just don't think anything of it. Okay. Uh, we take all kinds of payments, right? But we're going to pray over it. It's going to be really good. No, don't worry. We'll send you a brand new one. Uh, give it to the family. I appreciate you. Uh, Brother Nelson, would you say a prayer with us? Before we go, Jeff, do we have our next episode lined up? Uh, I don't know if you've been able to talk to our next guest possibly, but I haven't had yes. chance to really. Yes, uh, we're going to get to talk to Priscilla Dobbins. Uh, her husband was uh, the one who was inspired to create a whole ministry around the counseling of ministers and others. And I think she's going to come on and talk to us about that. So it's really exciting. I'm excited about that. A phenomenal woman. Um, you're going to be blessed by that. Dr. Nelson, would you say a prayer for us before we Thank you, uh, Tim and Raymond and Jeff. It was a joy to share time with all of us. Father, we're thankful for your grace and the mercies you've extended to us. Grateful for this opportunity that we can come together, even across the miles. Even in the midst of the global pandemic, we can still have a joy and a peace that passes all, all understanding. But I thank you for the, the opportunity of encouraging our pastors. You know where our pastors are today. You know what they're facing. Many times we suffer silently and we struggle even in isolation. But I pray that out of this podcast, may you encourage some heart today. Remind some pastor, you still have a plan and a purpose. And may you continue to grant grace over the pastor's family and the ministry for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I'm Tim Manis, Jeff Sargent, Raymond Culpepper, Hugh Nelson. We'll see you next time. Thank you.